This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who survive challenges like fire, flood and drought, people who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and those who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm Beck Wren. I'm Greg Cookle. And I'm Zali Thomas. Today, we're chatting with Michael Robertson. Michael is the Director of Agriculture and Food at the CSIRO. For over a century, the CSIRO has been an iconic part of the Australian scientific community, with agricultural research at the heart of the organisation. In this episode, Michael will share how Family Connection first sparked his passion for agriculture and how the agricultural research he has undertaken has had a tangible benefit for Australian farmers. Most importantly, he'll give us an insight into the future of agricultural innovation and how the research and technology that has been developed now will help the Australian agriculture and food industry to adapt, grow and prosper. Let's jump in. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, looking forward to the chat. So, Mike, you're the Director of Agriculture and Food at the CSIRO. What does that role actually entail? Well, CSIRO has been doing agricultural research since it started over 100 years ago, and it's had various units within the organisation that has done its agricultural research. And it wasn't until about 14 years ago that we brought all of our work together in cropping and livestock and sustainability and aquaculture in crop breeding and in food manufacturing into one place. And so my job is to look after 700 researchers around Australia who are doing work on all those different areas for Australia's benefit. 700 is a big number. Yeah, I mean, I've got a very good team who help look after the people and help lead the research and bring our revenue in from industry to help us do the work. They're a very dispersed bunch. We've got people in Darwin, in Hobart, in Perth, and in Brisbane, and then sort of all, all areas in between, really. Canberra and Brisbane are our biggest sites. We've got about half, 60% of our people in those two places. But we've got some a pretty strong presence in regional Australia as well. We've got laboratories in Narrabri, where we do work on cotton, in Armidale, where we do work on livestock. There are two big regional sites. We've got a small presence near Townsville, where we do tropical cattle work. And we've also got labs in Perth and Adelaide, but they're not really regional, but they're very much focused on their regions. I detect a slight New Zealand accent and your connection to ag started through your family in New Zealand, but you didn't actually grow up on a farm. How did your connection to ag begin? Yeah, my dad worked in agriculture his whole career, not as a farmer, but as a professional. So he started out as a land valuer, transitioned then to a farmer advisor, both working for a farmer club that employed him. 300 farmers that employed him who were all really starting out trying to farm and needed someone to help them advise them. Then he transitioned to working for a fertiliser company, so providing advice to farmers. And then finished his career in communications, actually, working firstly for a daily newspaper and then at a university, my university, actually, at a research institute, helping them with their communications. He, he loved communicating. So I, I guess I imbibed a little bit of the agriculture from him. We had cousins who were sheep farmers and still are sheep farmers in the very south of the country. Very successful and very productive sheep farmers, actually. It's an incredible part of the world where they can grow incredible amounts of sheep product per hectare because they've got the rain and the soil fertility. And uh, I guess those family connections were the ones that led me to agriculture. I was very keen on biology at school, and I guess I knew I wanted to apply biology in some way, whether it was going to be in agriculture, it could have been in forestry, 
could have been in marine biology, something like that. But I ended up deciding on agriculture because I just enjoyed not only farming, but also interacting with farmers as well. That's a great part of the job too, is the people side of it. And coming from New Zealand to Australia? Yeah, that, you know how you sort of take these decisions in life that lead you down a particular track and you don't realise at the time that they're sort of one-way streets really. So I left New Zealand wanting to stretch my wings a bit and wanted to do a PhD and I didn't want to do it in New Zealand. It felt a very small place to me at that time as a 23-year-old and so I decided to apply to a few universities around the world and Brisbane offered me a place, University of Queensland. I could have gone to Texas as well and I could have gone to Edinburgh but I decided on Brisbane because I was actually quite fascinated in tropical agriculture at that stage, even though I'd never actually been exposed to it. And one thing led to another. One of my PhD supervisors was from the CSIRO, so they knew about me. And they, um, after I headed off after my PhD, I went to the US for a couple of years to do some research there at a university in the Midwest. And the CSIRO people tracked me down and wanted to offer me a job. So I came back to Australia to take up a post in Townsville. And that's sort of where where my career with CSIRO started and it's continued for the subsequent 31 years. And how did that connection to agriculture in New Zealand it really lead to pursuing an, an agricultural research as a career? Yeah, I, I guess I was always interested in scientific research from my very early days. I knew I didn't really want to be a practitioner, like a, um, a consultant or an advisor or someone working for a bank like yourself or or whatever. I knew I, I think I was interested in research, but very much in the field, not a lab researcher. So I knew I wanted to do something outside, whether it was with crops or pastures or animals, something like that. I didn't have firm views, but I ended up getting very influenced by a couple of lecturers I had. I think this often happens with young people. They're often not sure what they're going to do, but they encounter a really inspiring character in the, early in their life, and that's the one who actually influences where they head. And I was lucky I had a very influential lecturer who lectured us in plant sciences, and he turned me on to agronomy. So that's what I did my PhD in, and then probably for the first half of my career in CSIRO, I was working in crop agronomy and farming systems in various parts of Australia. All due really to that influence of that early lecturer, actually. Yeah, you're right. It's a very, always a common story. There's always an influence from somewhere. Yeah. You're at the CSIRO now. Why is the CSIRO and the work that you're doing so important to Australian agriculture? Not many people know this, but there's only a, a handful of countries around the world that actually have a CSIRO. And so CSIRO is a national government-owned organisation that does research on all areas of the economy and society and the environment. We're multidisciplinary, so we do all sorts of different kinds of science. We've got a national footprint. When you think about that, it's a pretty special asset the country has because it means that we can tackle pretty much any problem thrown at us. We're not servicing a particular industry only or a particular part of Australia. And I think that does make us pretty special. I mean, we were established in the very early days to get to tackle some really tricky problems in agriculture, like the prickly pear cactus and some particularly difficult issues around farm animal diseases and also trace element deficiencies in soils. So one thing led to another and it grew and grew as an organisation and now does everything from astronomy to marine science and everything sort of in between, including digital and manufacturing and so on. So I guess our Act of Parliament, and we do have an Act of Parliament, a special act that says CSIRO shall do basically good stuff for Australia through its science and technology. And so our minister holds us to account to do that. And um, that's very much our, our mission, really. So we're very outcomes focused organisation. So we're not really like a university that's more interested in, I think, in the discovery of knowledge, because that's what universities are good at doing. And it's what's part of the teaching mandate that they have. Nor are we, I think, like a state agency 
or an industry body where we're very focused on, say, driving very practical outcomes through, say, extension or delivery programs, or in the case of a private company, creating profits to do that. I guess we sit in between, really, those two extremes. We try and take knowledge that others create, or sometimes we create it ourselves and then try and apply it to solve problems. But we've got to, you know, we can't do it alone either. Our job is to partner with others in doing that, and um, that's always front of mind as well. You can tell I am quite passionate about the role of CSIRO, and I think one of the strengths we have is our regional footprint as well. Interestingly, as you would remember when I came to Birchip the other month to give my talk, we actually don't have a presence in Victoria for agricultural research for historical reasons, but we do have a presence in every other state and territory in Australia. And I think that national footprint is actually really valuable as well, particularly when it comes to connecting with people in the regions like the farming community. CSIRO is probably one of those uh, organisations people might take for granted without really knowing what it really does so well. Yeah, if you ask your taxi driver, it's always a good test, isn't it, to find out what the general public think. They tend to know who we are. I guess we often get included in the same bucket as the ABC or Australia Post or Maybe not so much Qantas at the moment. We do trust surveys every year and we do come out very high on that. People really trust us. And I think that's because we try to be impartial in the um, pursuit of our science and solving problems. We don't take political positions. We're not allowed to, actually. And we are very strict about that. And I think because science is a very transparent endeavour, you basically, your methods and your results are being exposed to the test of your peers. Then I think that also helps build the trust with the public as well, because the scientific pursuit effectively tries to avoid fraud and and obfuscation. It's a transparent exercise. So we're very fortunate to have that trust with the Australian people. We're very conscious it's very easy to squander quickly as well. And the odd occasion when we have been tripped up and shown that we haven't been doing the right thing, it's very easy to see how quickly you can lose the trust of people, not only your political masters, but also just the general public. There's some very exciting and innovative agricultural research happening at the CSIRO right now. Can you tell me a bit about some of this research? Yeah, I'm guessing most of your listeners are are going to be broadacre farmers, Greg, so maybe I'll focus on some of the work we're doing with them. Maybe if I can firstly touch on some of our crop genetics and breeding work. Australia has a very strong crop breeding sector that produces new varieties for grain growers, but also other broadacre farmers. And what we're trying to do is come in and do something a little bit different that adds to that. One of the big exciting focuses we have at the moment is what we call crop molecular farming, which is where we're trying to breed crops that actually produce specialty compounds or molecules in their seeds or their leaves. And there's a couple of examples actually out there now, courtesy of our research, much of it funded by the GADC, by the way. So the omega-3 or fish oil canola, which is very close to getting out there in the hands of Australian farmers, is a great example of that, where the oil has been engineered to produce a higher concentration of fish oil for both a feed for aquaculture, but also for human nutrition. And then the super high oleic safflower, which is also a crop that's out there being grown commercially, is another example of that. But we see lots of other opportunities around specialty products out of cannabis compounds, believe it or not, could be used for medical cannabis or other health promoting compounds. So that's one exciting area in our crop breeding space. And we we're obviously will work with the commercial sector to help bring that science to market. And we won't be doing that alone. And GRDC will be heavily involved, no doubt, in much of the grains-based aspects of that. I think another exciting area is the digital area. I mean, it's a very hyped area. 
it's an area I've worked in on most of my career. I did a lot of work earlier in my career on precision agriculture or variable rate technology and grains growing. Before that, a lot of work on modelling, so prediction modelling to help farmers make decisions in the face of risky situations, particularly risky seasonal situations, and yield profit tool that's certainly been used widely by the Birchip membership, but also others around Australia is a good example of the usefulness of that for farmers' decision-making. Well, now the next iteration of that beyond that and BRT is what we call digital agriculture, which is where you're collecting information, not just around use of inputs on farms, but information about what's going all up and down the supply chain. So not only capturing information about inputs and then how, say, crops or animals are performing on farm, but also then the characteristics of those products their movement along the supply chain and even use, end use. And then linking that all together with broader scale information from satellites, from weather station networks, from soil mapping information, which is incredibly detailed now across Australia. Linking that all together so a broader range of decisions can be made using that information, not just around the use of inputs precisely, like in Precision Ag. Decisions like, for example, how can I secure, say, seasonal finance from my bank using digital information to, if you like, show that I'm making the best risk-informed decision about how I would use that finance. It could be decisions like helping to inform my insurer about an optimal premium for me to take out insurance, not only on my um, on my crops, but also on my, on my built assets as well. So digital ag sort of opening up a whole new world of data-informed decisions. We're by no means the only player in that space, of course, there's a lot of activity in the private sector which we try to enable, by the way, rather than compete with, as well as work going on in the public sector. One of the, I think, really interesting things about the livestock sector that is facing, I think, over the next few years and even decades is just this increasing threat of disease outbreaks. And we've all, we've all been you know, hearing about the threat of foot and mouth and lumpy skin disease in the cattle industry. But there's other diseases as well. And like we're, like we're expecting more more probably cases of COVID as humans now, I think the livestock sector will start to see more of that too, just because of the way various global drivers, including climate, are going to drive more disease outbreaks. So our solution to that, and it's not by no means the only solution, is to try and breed animals that have a more resilient immune system. So instead of relying on pharmaceuticals, and we've found this huge variation with a single flock or herd in terms of their ability of their immune system to withstand an infection, Normally what happens, though, when you pick the most resilient animals, they're the ones that are the least productive because the animal's putting a lot of its energy into its immune system and not into growing meat or wool or milk. But we've found that you can break that trade-off, actually, and you can find animals out there in the population that both have a resilient immune system and produce well. So we're doing a lot of work trying to find genetic markers for that and then working closely with the breed societies and so on to commercialise that so that they can help their members select animals that are immune resilient. Angus Australia has been the first adopter of that, but we're seeing other interest as well across both cattle and, and sheep as well. So I think that's really cool because it's really tackling quite a, a real, I think, present threat for the livestock sector in Australia. So these three examples from crop breeding, from digital ag and from livestock. That's great. And, and I suppose my next question is going to be even looking further out. So what are the ideas and the concepts that you're probably only just hearing about now that could be practically applied for the next generation of farmers? I think there's two aspects to that question, Greg. One is thinking about how what we call enabling technologies will help farming think differently about how it conducts itself. And when I talk about enabling technologies, I'm thinking of things like automation, for example, 
for innovation in, say, energy on farm, the provision of energy, particularly affordable energy, innovation around how inputs are manufactured, particularly maybe in distributed ways. So when you think about all those innovations happening, you think about, okay, so what research would you need, could you do then that would build on that to help farming think differently about itself? So we're doing some thinking about that sort of stuff at the moment, thinking about what agriculture, say, might look like in 2050. Not in a predictive way, but we're thinking about some various scenarios. So we're not picking one particular future possibility, but thinking of a range of them. And they include things like if renewable energy is going to be becoming more and more affordable and able to be adopted in on-farm and, say, microgrids, what does that mean around what farming could look like if it's got access to that? Or if automation does become affordable, deregulated and so on, you say with swarm bots or some other forms of, of automation, what does that mean in terms of how farmers might farm? So we're, we're doing a bit of thinking about all that. And it's really interesting because we've got a lot of buy-in from both government and industry bodies about being involved in that. And I think they're finding that quite an energising sort of thought experiment that they're doing. So that's sort of thinking about the future of agriculture in a more general sense and the sort of research opportunities that might open up. We sort of see, I think, three main really big emerging science areas that we're seeing will really continue to transform agriculture. And they are in the genetic space, particularly our ability to very precisely edit, we call it, or engineer the genetics of a plant or an animal or a microbe, actually, for that matter, without using GM technology, which means, of course, it then becomes much easier to deregulate and potentially be acceptable to governments and consumers. I mean, that's already happening around the world and we're, Australia's got to be on that bandwagon and we're a big part of that. We're not going to be the only part of it, but we will be a big part of it. It basically means you can go in and very precisely either delete a gene that's causing a, a deleterious impact in that plant or animal, or you can go in and add a new gene but not a new gene from a foreign species, which is what GM is about. And that's what people object to is having foreign DNA in their products. And that's why it can hopefully will be much more acceptable. So that's a big one. And we're doing gene editing in things like crops, like wheat and canola and, and wine grapes, believe it or not, but also in animals like salmon. We do a lot of work with the salmon industry in Tasmania and even in um, ruminants. So we're doing some very early stage work there, particularly in cattle. So that's a big one. I think the digital space is, is a big one as well. And I think the next wave there is thinking about how does artificial intelligence come into play, particularly around how farmers might make sense of all the data that they're collecting themselves, but also can discover through others who are collecting it. So being able to walk out into the paddock and use some sort of artificial intelligence to make sense of what you're seeing and even maybe provide you with some predictions about what might happen under various scenarios. I think that's the power of what AI can do. I don't think it will substitute for farmers making good decisions, but I think it will provide them with confidence. Their intuition and their best guesses are actually on the right track. I think that's always what science does in these situations is in terms of farmer decision-making is it gives them confidence that their, their decisions are, are not just um, random hunches, but are sound. So I think the AI revolution is going to transform every part of society, isn't it? But agriculture is going to be no different from that. And then there are a few other really interesting ones, which I think I'm a bit unclear of what that might mean, but I think they will mean something. And that's the revolution of what we call materials science. So that's this idea that you can use manufactured materials, metals, ceramics, plastics, to do all sorts of clever things in agriculture, whether they could be, say, 
carry molecules into places we can't get them now, whether they be in animals, rumen, or deep into the subsoil or into a plant using what we call nanotechnology, which is very, very small particles. And there's some really amazing innovations happening there, but also changes in uh, uh, using material science to do other clever things as well, like devices that could be used on farm, hardware devices that might have clever properties. People have been talking for some time now about, it hasn't emerged, but I think it will come one day. The military do this a lot. They actually create very small sensors, very, very small, like just a few millimetres long, and they spread them around across battlefields to give them some intelligence about what's going on, what the enemy's doing and so on and what the terrain's like. And they're quite cheap because they're so small and they manufacture them in the thousands, right? And you can easily imagine if that technology became cheap enough, farmers being able to have what we call sensor dust, that's the sort of nickname they give it, scattered around their farms and it telling them in almost in real time what's going on in that paddock or what's going on in, in that situation. So that's sort of what material science, I think, um, provides us with some, sounds a bit like science fiction. It is actually when you look across at seeing what goes on and say in the defence space or in space exploration or in some of the big computing innovations, it's kind of already been prototyped actually. Now that's a fascinating insight. So digital agriculture has been a common theme throughout your career and from the early days of introducing basic technology for farmers to the point where we're at now with automation and robotics, what's it about digital farming that drives you? For me, it's a lot of it's around the old adage that what gets measured gets managed. And my observation is that the most switched on farmers are the ones that do collect information about what's going on on their properties and use it to inform decisions they're making. Not only the best ones, but there's some very good farmers who don't do that too. But I think in general, in life in general, the old management adage that what gets measured gets managed is a, is a sound one. So that's what the Opportunity Digital provides us, is that the ability to measure things, particularly automatically, so that farmers don't actually have to go to an extra effort to collect stuff above and beyond what they're doing already. That has, I think, been a bit of a barrier to the adoption of much of digital stuff right until today, is that it actually requires extra effort, extra learning, you know, having to deal with maybe new technology, maybe at a time of life when farmers aren't necessarily interested in wanting to learn about all that stuff. So I think the more we can automate that so that it happens as a course of just doing other stuff that has to be done will make it much easier. The other opportunity digital provides is with society and other stakeholders like banks and insurers and governments paying a lot more attention to what happens on farms. Digital provides us with the opportunity to provide the information to provide credentials or assurance of what's going on at the moment. And farmers have to do that already, right? They have to fill out paperwork around residue levels on their product or what biosecurity stuff. But I think digital provides not only the prospect of that, although a lot of that being electronic and automated, but also being able to collect information about all sorts of other things that are going on in their farm too that we don't realise at the moment that maybe will be of interest to various stakeholders. So I think that's the other really practical prospect. And maybe the final thing, I think automation, I mean, everyone's a little bit scared of automation sometimes because I think it's going to replace farmers. You know, we're going to have driverless tractors everywhere and there won't be a need for people. They'll just stay in town and run the farm from their phone. I think that's going to be far <laughs> from the case. What I think automation provides in the near term is taking a lot of the drudgery and unsafe practices out of farming, actually. So that if we can keep farmers away from dealing with dangerous situations through 
having machinery automating tasks or doing tasks that often lead to injuries because they're repetitive or so on, then I think that's another real obvious benefit as well. Because we know how unsafe farming is, don't we? The number of people who get killed every year on farms or injure themselves. Your research has had a tangible effect on agriculture and farming. What's some of the highlights of the research you've been involved in over your career? I'll give you an example from very early in my career when I was working in the sugar industry in North Queensland. Then one when I worked in grains in the Northern Grains region, so Northern New South Wales, Southern Queensland, and then one that I was involved in in Western Australia, where I've been for the last 17 years of my time. When we first started working with the sugar industry in in North Queensland, it was actually remarkable how little the sugar industry knew about what yields it should expect from its crops in different situations. There was actually very little information underpinning what was a realistic yield expectation say under a given climatic situation on a given soil type with a given amount of, say, fertiliser input or whatever. And so the big effort we put into over four years, a team of people that I was part of, was trying to quantify that. And as a consequence of that, by the way, in the course of doing that, we grew at the time the world world record yield for a sugarcane crop, actually, a very well-managed crop. There was an enormous amount of biomass produced, but that wasn't obviously the the aim of what we were trying to do. We were trying to collect solid quantitative information so that both industry and farmers could have realistic expectations around that. And then we use that information to help them formulate guidelines around how they irrigate their crops, getting the best use out of their water, best use out of their nitrogen and so on. And also with the sugar industry, there's a complicated thing that happens every year around scheduling of when crops get harvested and sent off to the sugar mill. It happens over a six month period, optimizing that is actually quite a tricky thing and it's often done on the seat of the pants. But if you've got some idea about how crops will yield at different times of the year and also how long they've been growing, you can actually start to use scientific information to optimise that for the millers and the growers. So then I moved down to southern Queensland and started working in the grains industry and the, the really interesting thing that was going on there, and this is in the mid to late 90s, is that growers were starting to grow canola. And of course, canola was booming in southern New South Wales, into Victoria, around into South Australia. And there's some quite innovative farmers who are having a go at canola in the north. And everyone said, no, you can't grow canola in the north. It's too hot. Or you can't grow it in rotation with summer crops because the canola will kill off the microbiology in the soil, the mycorrhiza that many crops like sorghum and mung beans and cotton need to harvest their phosphorus out of the soil. And there was a fair bit of anecdotal evidence that that was the case. So I set about over a period of six years funded by GRDC to try and show that you could grow canola in the north in rotation with wheat and other crops. Looked at the range of varieties that were available from southern Australia at the time to see how well they went in the hotter climates of the north, shorter seasons of the north, and came up with some um, guidelines around sowing dates, around varieties, around um, all sorts of management options. And the industry really started to pick up and we documented the area of the crop picking up over those six years. I think it was quadrupled, I think, over that time from a pretty small start, but actually became, I think, widely understood as being a viable break crop for people in the system there. So I'm quite proud of that work. That was done with my state government colleagues in Queensland and North and New South Wales, so it wasn't done alone. And I think I did the work also that ended up influencing how to think about canola in the farming system elsewhere in Australia as well. So we used a lot of the science that was done in the north and extrapolated it to the south and the west at the time too. So I actually spent a lot of time travelling to places like Perth 
in Adelaide and um, Horsham, Wagga Wagga, to talk to canola researchers there too and trying to build a, a greater understanding about how the crop performs. And then when I moved to the West, I think the really interesting piece of work we took on there was the precision agriculture work. So GRDC were really interested in understanding how could we push variable rate technology more? So how could we get farmers using yield monitors, variable rate controllers on their tractors to be more precise about their fertiliser management? And we've tracked the adoption of VRT in the, in the West and South Australia actually as well over those six years of those two projects and showed that we took the adoption from about 10% of growers to about 30% who were using VRT in one form or another. Interestingly, as far as I can tell, it hasn't actually shifted much from 30% since then. Oh, really? Since yeah. about the early 2000s. And I think there's some good reasons for that. So I think we probably helped all of the people who were going to adopt it basically get going with it back then. And, and the, the work was both trying to understand variability in soils and how you can match inputs to soils and crop potential, but also some very practical things about how farmers use their yield maps to interpret the variability, how they can use other forms of soil mapping, even some really practical stuff, which our partners did with us about how you just get the gear to talk to each other. Like back in those days, it was often really hard to get interoperability between the um, variable rate spreaders and the controllers. Manufacturers weren't really playing nice with each other. So um, we, we ran a lot of workshops just to help farmers troubleshoot that really practical stuff. Because they told us, I don't want to be stuffing around at seeding time, trying to get the system going when I could be out there getting the paddock in. That was actually a big barrier to adoption back then as farmers just didn't want to be the hassle of dealing with technology that wasn't easy to use. You've certainly had a, a wide and varied career in, in CSRO and, and certainly made a, a big impact on agriculture during that time. So that's great. It's um, now time to get into quickfire round. <laughs> okay. So uh, I've got a few questions that I'm going to ask you in, in fairly rapid succession. And then there's two rules to this. So the first rule is you have to keep your answers to a, a maximum of one sentence. And the second rule is you have to answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. So uh, are you ready? Yep. All right, let's go. If you weren't in the job you're in now, what would you be doing? Maybe writing books. I really like literature. If you could change to another part of agriculture, what area would that be? I find the aquaculture sector really exciting. High technology, very novel and hugely successful. What's the best lesson you've learned from a mistake, a stuff up or a failure? Try and learn from your mistakes and don't beat up on yourself too much and shrug them off without carrying them around too heavily. A bit of advice. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? My superpower is bringing various bits of information together to provide an integrated picture around something. That's something I've always been very good in my career. And finally, when you're out wandering around a paddock, what's the brand of boots that you wear? Blundstones, actually. Fantastic. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Greg. I've really enjoyed the chat. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Farm Gate, a podcast by Rural Bank, where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. For more information, including regular analysis and reports, head to the website, ruralbank.com.au This show was produced with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Beyond the Farm Gate, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show.
I'm Zali Thomas. I'm Greg Cookle. And I'm Beck Wren. And we'll see you in the next episode of Beyond the Farm Gate.